Hi, this is Tom Fontana, and you are listening to the Inside Oz podcast. Enjoy. Five hours to dawn, and I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king of sticks. And you know, you know, you're so fucking clean and righteous, man. You said, I, I, I got demons clawing at my ass. The streets I was selling dope, I'm bad as any of those homeboys. Fucking kill the cop! Fuck you, governor. And what is your problem, man? You fuck it up. I wish I could, man. I got potatoes to peel. Yeah, you give me a phone number and an address. Bet you wouldn't mind that. Yeah, thanks for the stimulating conversation, guys. You guys like goats. You know, you got to bring everything down to the level of a goat. Titties and humping. Sex offender. Shit all over, man. It's not normal. I am black. I am a Muslim and I am a man. And sometimes those two things, they won't. It's about the whole horrid judicial system. And welcome to Series 2 of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. I'm your host, Neil Thompson, and the boys are very much back in town. I'm back, you're back, and most of the cast are back too. And that is what we're going to be dealing with today as we get into the fallout and the aftermath of Riot that concluded Series 1. Before we get into that though, if you need to catch up on the podcast so far, you can do so by listening to the entire first series over at iTunes, at Podbean... It's also available at Stitcher Radio, Acast, and all other good podcasting platforms. You'll find the first eight episodes looking back at Series 1 of Oz, as well as the bonus episode, Outside Oz Number 1, which was the watch-along episode that I did where we sat down and watched the movie Cool Runnings. I'll have more bonus episodes coming your way in the near future, so keep an eye out for those, and as always, check the social media pages for updates as well. And I also want to say a huge thank you to Tom Fontana for recording that little introduction that you heard at the start of this episode. It took a couple of emails back and forth to get it done, but I am incredibly grateful to Mr. Fontana for doing that for the show. Hopefully I will be able to get more members of the cast and crew to interact with the podcast for you listeners. But today we're going to be looking at Series 2, Episode 1, The Tip. So the show had been off the air for close to a year, yet this episode takes place in the immediate aftermath of the riot. It was written as always by Tom Fontana and was directed by Nick Gomez, who is back for his first time since episode 2, Visits Conjugal and Otherwise. It holds an 8.1 rating on IMDb, which despite being a score that is well above average, it is the lowest rated episode of the show on the site. The episode was originally broadcast on July 11th, 1998, so premiering on a Saturday night, much like series 1 did in 1997. On this day in 1998... Croatia beat the Netherlands by two goals to one in the third-place playoff of the FIFA World Cup. State Farm Insurance Company paid $100 million to 117 policyholders to settle a lawsuit that alleged that the company cut their earthquake coverage just prior to a devastating quake in 1994 that occurred in the San Fernando Valley. And Billy Piper held on to the number one spot in the UK singles charts with Because We Want To, while the US Billboard charts saw Brandy and Monica at the summit with The Boy Is Mine. So with that, it's over to Augustus to bring us all up to speed. Oz. The name on the street for the Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary. Oz. Where after months of tension, 
A riot erupted. The unit known as Emerald City was overtaken by its prisoners. The governor ordered his troops to recapture it by any means necessary. Six prisoners and two correctional officers were dead. 34 others were injured. Some overcome by the gas. Some from the beatings. Some from rifle wounds. Among those shot, Tim McManus, who invented Emerald City. And some say, ran it into the ground. The rest of the prisoners removed to Genpa. So the episode opens up with what I'm fairly sure is a newly recorded version of the theme tune. It seems to be a lot more polished than the one used in the first series. As well as Augustus filling us in on the riot. And he reveals that six inmates and two guards were killed along with 34 other injuries. And we see a mixture of shots involving Father Ray struggling for breath. Some guards putting a beating on Saeed. And finally we see McManus getting wheeled into the hospital ward having suffered a gunshot wound to the chest. The other inmates are moved into Genpop, and straight away you get a feeling of Genpop being a completely different world to M-City. It's all very dark and dingy, and all the inmates are in prison-issue uniforms similar to a boiler suit. It's like they're the world's largest Slipknot tribute act. The Genpop inmates are all saying to the M-City guys that they're going to kill them, and you really get a sense of the hostility that's in the air, as well as getting a renewed feeling of tribal warfare amongst the inmates. Not only do they seem to hate different groups amongst themselves, but they even seem to hate inmates from other parts of the prison. The leaders of the riot, Saeed, Ryan and Adebisi, are all placed in solitary for their roles in the riot, and Augustus closes this segment joking about how by dawn, peace had descended on Oz, and we get a shot of M-City in its trashed glory. So much like McManus in the first episode last year, Ryan is rather randomly wearing a beanie hat for this episode, the reason for which will become clear next time. We cut to Devlin being swamped by reporters demanding an update, and he says that he's started to put together a commission to investigate the cause of the riot, who was involved, as well as the appropriateness of Leo's response. So obviously we know that it was Devlin's call to send the sort in to take the prison back, so this is Devlin looking to throw Leo under the bus somewhat and divert any attention from himself. He's asked who is going to lead the investigation, and he informs them that it will be Alva Case, the dean of the local law school, and he says that Case's findings will be fair, complete, and impartial. 
And with that, we meet Alva Case, played by the guest-starring Charles S. Dutton. Born January 30th, 1951 in Baltimore, Maryland, Dutton dropped out after finishing middle school before having a short-lived amateur boxing career, where he earned the nickname Rock. At the age of 17, Dutton got into a fight which resulted in a man's death. While Dutton claimed that he was attacked by the man, Dutton was convicted of manslaughter and served seven years in prison. Shortly after his release, Dutton was arrested again and convicted of possession of a deadly weapon, for which he served three and a half years. During his second incarceration, Dutton assaulted a corrections officer and as a result served six days in solitary confinement. In somewhat of a lucky accident, Dutton was allowed one book in his cell and he chose an anthology of black playwrights. Dutton enjoyed the book so much he asked the warden to start a drama program for the prison's Christmas talent show. The warden agreed on condition that Dutton go back to school and gain his GED. Dutton would earn his qualification and also complete a two-year college program in conjunction with Hagerstown Junior College, graduating in 1976 with an Associate of Arts degree. Upon his release, Dutton enrolled as a drama major at Towson State University, graduating in 1978 with a Bachelor of Arts degree, before attending the Yale School of Drama, graduating with a Master's degree in 1983. Dutton would make his Broadway debut in a 1984 production of August Wilson's play, Moraney's Black Bottom, where he won a Theatre World Award for Best Actor, as well as his first Tony Award nomination. In 1990, Dutton earned his second Tony Award nomination for another August Wilson play, The Piano Lesson, before moving into television to star in the sitcom Rock, named after his boxing career nickname. The show ran on Fox from 1991 to 1994, with Dutton also acting as a producer. During this time, Dutton also appeared in feature films such as Alien 3, Menace to Society, and The Distinguished Gentleman. Following Rock's cancellation, Dutton appeared in a TV version of The Piano Lesson, as well as the films Seven, A Time to Kill, Mimic, and also appeared on TV in a 1996 episode of Homicide Life on the Street. I've got a homicide-themed game for new cast members coming up later, so listen out for that when we get to it. For some reason, I always thought this role of Alva Case featured Reginald Val Johnson, who played Sergeant Al Powell in Die Hard. I've no idea where I've got that from, but for years, that's who I thought played this role. So Devlin and Case meet in Leo's office, and straight away, Case is saying fuck you to Devlin. Not in a, an aggressive way, more of a, ah, get out of here sort of way. And it looks as though Devlin is pushing Case to rule in his favour with his findings, so that everything can be solved quickly and it can all get swept under the rug, and so that Devlin can shut down M-City in the process. Case becomes another member of the SORT Team Pronunciation Club, and then tells Devlin to back off so that he can do his job. Devlin grabs his coat to leave and mentions about he's soon going to be looking for a replacement State Attorney General, as the current one is stepping down, and that maybe Case could be the man to replace him. With that, Leo enters and Devlin leaves, but not before telling Case to find the truth because the truth shall set your fee. Case then asks Leo what the truth actually is. Is Devlin guilty? Is Leo? And he says that depending on what he finds out, it could be Leo that ends up getting fired. Leo finishes the scene saying that if that is the case, then Alva will be doing him a huge fucking favour. I like it when Ernie Hudson drops an F-bomb. He always says it with such intensity and in his emphasis. You know that he means it. We cut to Case walking through Genpop, and as he passes Beecher, they exchange a long stare between each other, before we continue to follow Beecher down the hallway. He passes Schillinger's cell and asks how is it hanging, as we see Schillinger looking on intently, not showing the fear that he did the last time we saw the pair together. 
With Schillinger having been in Oz for a number of years at this point, he's probably built up a small network of associates around the prison in that time. And with both he and Beecher now being in Genpop together, you can see the wheels are turning and he's formulating some sort of plan in the next stage of the Beecher-Schillinger feud. As I was writing this episode, I wanted to take the time to give Lee Tergerson a proper introduction like I have with the other cast members on the show. In episode 1, I simply referred to him as Terry from Wayne's World, and I just left it at that. And I felt it a bit of a disservice to Lee for doing that, especially as the other cast members are being given a much bigger introduction, and I want to do the same for Lee here. So, born July 8th, 1965, in Ivoryton, Connecticut, Lee Turgeson graduated from Valley Regional High School in nearby Deep River, and eventually moved to New York at the age of 18, where he started to pursue his acting career. Lee completed the American Musical and Dramatic Academy's two-year program in Manhattan, and between 1986 and 1989, worked as a waiter at the Empire Diner. In an interview with Rosie Magazine, Lee admitted, I wasn't a great waiter. I was funny, but I gave a lot of attitude. This next part, I'm a little sceptical on, as I couldn't seem to corroborate this at all, but in 1989, it says that Lee met Tom Fontana whilst working at the diner. After appearing in some stage plays, Lee went to Los Angeles where he helped Fontana move into his new house. The next day, while dining out, a casting director and friend of Fontana asked Lee if he was an actor, and then told him he had a part in this movie for him. The film in question was Point Break, starring Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. The casting directors on that were Sharon Bialy and Richard Pagano. I couldn't find a direct link between them and Tom Fontana, but Pagano was from Pittsburgh, which is obviously in the northeast near New York, so he could have known Fontana that way. Of the role, Lee said in an interview with the LA Times in 1990, it was the beginning of me never having to do anything else but act. After taking a bit part in the 1991 TV pilot, Acting Sheriff, Lee would appear, as I mentioned previously, as Terry in 1992's Wayne's World, as well as its 1993 sequel. Lee would mainly work on TV for the next few years before landing in the role of Tobias Beecher, including a recurring role, as previously mentioned, on Homicide Life on the Street, Philly Heat, and five seasons of Weird Science, the TV series based off the 1985 film of the same name, playing the part of Chester Donnelly, a military school graduate who refused to be stationed overseas. Lee is also the brother of Chris Turgeson, who worked on Oz as the music supervisor. We see Kenny detoxing from whatever drugs he's been taking before Rebido and Beecher arrive in their new cell, currently occupied by James Robson, played by R.E. Rogers. Robson lays down the law to his new cellmates, telling them that this is his cell and this is his bunk, and asks Rebido if he has a problem with any of that, Rebido wisely telling him no as he looks to keep his head down. Beecher is over at the bars reciting something about feeling like a piece of candy and then something about butter. I couldn't really make it out and the subtitles on the DVD didn't catch it either. Robson tries to get Beecher's attention but isn't successful as we then hear Augustus asking if anybody has any news about Dobbins and Vehu, who seem to be missing from the rest of the M-City group. Rebido says that he hasn't heard anything and that he was only in the emergency room and couldn't see into the ward. Robson tells everyone to shut up as Beecher continues his little talk to himself and Kenny yells out that he needs some tits. Augustus shouts to Beecher, who, as he turns around, gets a palm strike to the nose, which could have killed Beecher there and then, and puts over Dobson quite well. He laughs at Beecher menacingly, and Beecher then turns back to the bars, this time remaining quiet. Kenny is still shouting for drugs and is told to calm down by one of his cellmates. Kenny doesn't take this well and grabs the man by the throat, which then leads to a fight breaking out. Guards come in to break it up and they drag Kenny away as we cut to Father Ray conducting a service for the victims killed in the riot. It is here that we find out that the two guards that lost their lives were Hunt and Nowakowski, as Ray says a prayer for them, as well as the six inmates that lost their lives. 
The crowd mutter away to themselves about that part as Ray then prays for the recoveries of Menia, Armstrong and McManus as we cut to Diane in the crowd and then get a flashback of her holding McManus in her arms as gunshots ring out in the background. So that is one of very few shots where we get to see from when the saw entered the prison. Ray finishes off by asking for a blessing on Oz itself, asking for understanding, patience and the strength to forgive and to be forgiven as we see Sister Pete shed a tear. We also get a flashback of Devlin saying that there will be no negotiations and about cutting off the water supply, and we close the scene on a shot of Case attending the service as well. We get an Augustus segment about how blame is a beautiful thing and how people shift the blame all the time. I loved his little nightcap in that bit as well, he looked like something straight out of a Dickens book. And we then go to McManus in the hospital who's being visited by Case. Mr McManus? Mr McManus? Elder Case? Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> Our Grand Inquisitor. This is not an Inquisition, sir. Bullshit. Devlin's been trying to dismantle him city since the beginning. This is his chance. Ooh, Leo told me you'd be tough. He says you two aren't always in agreement, but he admires your vision, your ideals. What is it you want, exactly? I want to ask some questions. I have nothing to say. Governor is busy picking the other members of the commission. In the meantime, I'm doing some preliminary interviews. I have nothing to say. Look, ultimately it's going to be up to me to decide if M-City ever reopens. I have nothing to say. So McManus doesn't want anything to do with the investigation, seemingly taking a stance of if he keeps quiet then he can't be implemented in anything. This is also the first of a few occasions where we see Case trying to get people on his side by acting like he's their friend. That is, before he then gets to the business of asking hard-hitting questions. It was also nice to hear that Leo had said to him that while he and McManus don't always see eye to eye, that he does admire McManus's vision and ideals. It's sort of been implied in scenes between Leo and McManus, but it's nice to know that Leo has said those things to other people as well. Next, Case goes to visit with Saeed, who we see praying while still being locked up in solitary. Case refers to Saeed as minister and even shakes his hand, so he clearly has a certain amount of respect for Saeed, even though he is an inmate. Saeed claims that there was no riot, but rather a righteous struggle against repression and injustice. And Case cuts in saying righteous or not, eight people are dead, Saeed saying that he grieves for their deaths. Case asks about how Saeed had been recruiting other Muslims and converting other inmates, all the while sowing the seeds of discontent. Saeed says that he spoke the truth, and Case tells him to do that now more than ever. He says that Saeed talks a good game about speaking the truth, but that he fails to take responsibility for his actions. Saeed tells him that he didn't fire the rifles, but Case fires back, no pun intended, about how Saeed created the circumstances for them to be fired. Saeed once again claims that it's the system that is at fault, and he calls Case's commission a fraud and that it is Devlin who should be the one that's being investigated, and how Devlin appointing Case is like Saeed being able to pick his own jury at his trial. So, again, pardon the expression here, but Saeed is sticking to his guns with regards to his actions, feeling that he was justified in what happened and is still prepared to fight for reform. Much like with Lee Tergerson earlier, I don't feel I gave Eamon Walker much of an introduction in the last series, so I'm going to correct that here too. 
Born June 12, 1962 and the son of a Grenadian father and a Trinidadian mother, Eamon was brought up in Islington in London, although he did live in Trinidad for six months when he was nine. After attending Hungerford School back in Islington, Eamon began studying social work at North London Polytechnic, and also trained as a dancer before joining the Explosive Dance Theatre Company in London. However, an abscess on one of his calves forced him to give up dancing where he then switched gears to become an actor, eventually studying at the New York Film Academy. Eamon made his theatre acting debut playing an East End punk rocker in Labelled With Love, a musical based on the hits of the pop group Squeeze. His television debut came on an episode of Dempsey and Makepeace in 1985, as well as working on children's television show Drama Rama. Later that year, Eamon was cast as Winston, often referred to as Marigold, in the BBC sitcom In Sickness and in Health, where he appeared for the first three series as well as a Christmas special as the thorn in the side of lead character Alf Garnett. Following other TV work, Eamon would be cast as PC Malcolm Haynes in ITV's The Bill, a role which he would appear in for 54 episodes until the end of 1989. Eamon's first film role came in 1991's Young Soul Rebels, a film about different youth cultural movements set in Britain in the late 1970s. Eamon would return to British television soon after, appearing in three episodes of Birds of a Feather for the BBC, as well as a special feature-length episode of One Foot in the Grave. His next film appearance occurred in 1994's Shopping, before he again returned to BBC sitcoms, including Goodnight Sweetheart and The Detectives. Eamon would appear as Jake Brown in the miniseries Supply and Demand, a show created by Linda LaPlante, who then recommended Eamon to Tom Fontana for the role of Kareem Saeed, his breakout role in the United States. In preparation for the role, Eamon spent time at a mosque in Harlem, New York, as well as researching the Nation of Islam religious movements, as well as American Muslim culture. In an interview with the Trinidad and Tobago Express, Eamon explained that as an actor, he felt his portrayal had to be real. As I mentioned at the end of the last series, Eamon won the Cable ACE Award for Best Actor in a Dramatic Series for his role of Kareem Saeed. So Case leaves Saeed's cell and goes to try and question Adebisi, who much like Kenny in Genpop is on somewhat of a come down from the drugs. Adebisi is rubbing his balls as his cell door opens and Case is standing there. He asks Case if he wants to lick his balls, but Case just looks disgusted and walks away. He's not having anything to do with that. We cut to a news conference of Case introducing the other members of the commission to the press. So we've got Judge Fee and Mr. Balling, who will focus on events that led up to the riot. Bishop Callahan and Mr. Dodge dealing with the behaviour of the inmates and staff during the riot, and Mrs. Ederson and Dudley Freed who are looking at the decision to send in the sort. We don't see a whole lot of these characters or their investigation. The episode is mainly focused around Case and his own investigation. The press asks how long Case thinks the investigation will take, asking days, weeks, with Case saying that it will take as long as it takes before the scene closes with him being asked some more questions. It was an interesting decision taken to have the investigation be the focus of just one episode rather than having it take either the whole of the second series or even half of it. I suppose it was decided to do it this way as obviously we, the audience, having already seen the events that led up to the riot, so maybe we would have been treading old ground. I don't know, maybe there was some more mileage in the investigation storyline, but then again maybe it would have taken the focus off of the inmates, and Oz at the end of the day is a prison show, it's not a cop show, so maybe it was best to have the whole thing take place in a self-contained episode and move the entire story along quicker. So next up for Case to interview is Augustus. He asks Case if he knows anything about Dobbins and Vahue, but Case says that they'll deal with his questions first, and ask him to explain what he thinks led to the riot. And from here we get a montage of flashbacks and different interviews with both staff and inmates giving their side of the story. So tell me, in as many words as necessary, 
What do you think led to the riot? They're violent. All they know is violence. The COs, man. They treat us like shit. Sometimes the inmates get bored. They took away conjugals. They took away smoking. No, it's more than that. You deny a man his freedom, his family, his privacy, his dignity, then all he has left is time to simmer. And eventually, the simmer becomes a boil. We've been hearing whispers that the Muslims were going to start trouble. The Aryans are paranoid. What caused the riot? Two brain-dead crackhead motherfuckers playing checkers. And then all of a sudden, the world imploded. Fucking cocksucker! You treated the hostages good. They treated us like shit. We tried to negotiate. Their demands were ridiculous. And then the lights went out. There's tear gas. Gun. Tim McManus got shot in the chest. I saw the side of Rodrigo's head get blown off. So naturally, both sides are blaming the other for the riot, and in some cases the inmates are even trying to shift the blame away from their respective groups and onto others. We also find out the name of the inmate that took a gunshot to the head when the sort came in, so he is no longer the unmanned inmate, but rather Rodrigo, a member of the Latinos. Case meets with Gloria, who says that Hunt and Nowakowski were both shot in the back, but Case seems interested in what happened to Scott Ross, who we find out is also dead having been shot three times. Once in the head, once in the heart, and once in the testicles. He asked Gloria how in all the randomness of the gunfire how he ended up being shot in three very specific places, which she seems to agree is pretty odd. Augustus then narrates about the saying of curiosity killing the cat as we see Adebisi still coming down from the drugs. He has trashed his solitary cell and is throwing the feathers from his pillow around, chanting a song and banging his head against the wall. The sort comes to take Adebisi away and he even tells one of them that he loves them as we close act one. Solitary sucks, man. But if you really want some company, you just gotta go through withdrawal. So Act 2 kicks off with Leo giving out to Case about how his prison is crawling with reporters and TV cameras, and Case quite bluntly asks if Leo is afraid of what they'll find. Leo says that he isn't afraid of that, but more how they'll find it and how things get stirred up, and that people are already stirred up enough. Case questions Leo about Scott Ross and says that he thinks Scott may have been murdered during the sort's attack, and describes Scott being shot three times the way that he was as being execution style. He backs this up by saying that the bullets recovered from Scott were from a 9mm gun, which the SORT team don't use in their rifles. Leo says that they do use 9mm handguns, and that maybe Scott attacked a member of the SORT while his rifle was lowered, and as a result of that, the member of the SORT had to resort to using his handgun. And he says quite bluntly that that isn't murder, it's self-defence. Case mentions about how shooting Scott in the head should have been enough, and Leo says that maybe Scott got shot in the heart or in the balls first. He's not trying to cover up for anyone, he just seems to be trying to find an explanation. Case then mentions about how the bullet from Scott's head was recovered from a wall below the control desk, and the one from his heart was embedded in the floor. So the evidence does in fact seem to indicate murder, which Leo admits. We cut to the gym, where members of the sort seem to be training for an episode of Gladiators, while Augustus' voiceover makes a quip about being able to kill Scott in all the chaos of the riot and get away with it scot-free. 
as Leo identifies Officer Hein, played by Paul Schulz, who is going to be the first of this series' new characters to take part in a new game which I'm calling Homicide or Nomicide. So it's a pretty straightforward game as there's only one question. Was Paul Schulz in an episode of Homicide Life on the Street before appearing in an episode of Oz? Place your bets now and I will reveal the answer at the end of the episode. So Case interviews Heim in the locker room, telling him that the bullets that killed Scott came from the same box that Heim put in his handgun, meaning that it was Heim's gun that killed Scott. Case raises the point about how that Heim's report doesn't mention firing at Scott, and Heim says that he didn't fire at Scott, but when he's asked who did, he says that he doesn't know. Case asks him if he handed his gun to someone, and Heim says that no, he didn't. Case then asks him if the gun was in his holster when he entered, and this time Heim says yes. To which Case asks what happened then, but Heim says that it disappeared. While he's being asked these questions, Heim is changing out of his gym gear, which gives an indication as to how seriously he's taken this line of questioning. Case asks if he felt anyone take his gun from his holster, to which Heim says none, that things were crazy and everything happened pretty fast. Case concludes that what Heim is telling him is that someone managed to lift his gun from his holster without him noticing, to which Heim says that's right, and is then asked why he didn't mention any of that in the report, which Case calls a little ditty which I quite liked. Heim says that he found his gun on the floor, so if any of this is true and Heim isn't just some bullshit artist, he obviously hoped that he could get away with not mentioning it. Case isn't buying any of Heim's story and he asks him if he looks like an idiot and to cut the bullshit. He says that the sort guys love their weapons more than they love pussy. Again, another great line that I liked. And that they would know if it was gone from their possession. He then asks Heim who he's covering for, but Heim tells him that Scott Ross was low-life scum just like the rest of the inmates. He says that they hurt Menio and Armstrong and killed Hunt and Nowakowski, and asks if Case is going after a corrections officer because they killed Scott, and asks whose side is Case on. Case tells him that he is on the law's side and tells Heim that he can leave. As Heim turns away, we find out that he's been stood there bollock naked the whole time. Symbolic, or symbolic if you will. But he thinks he has nothing to hide and he heads into the shower. We get some Augustus narration saying that you need a good memory to be a good liar, as we again see Kenny going through withdrawal as the inmates are in their bunks at lights out. Augustus looks at him from across the way and asks Kenny if he's okay. Kenny says that he needs some tits, but Augustus tells him that tits are the last thing that he needs. Sort of reinforcing that Augustus is one of the better inmates in us. We then go to Beecher's cell where Robson jumps down from his bunk and wakes Beecher up, demanding that Beecher suck his dick. Beecher tries to push him away and tells Robson to fuck off, but he ends up getting another punch in the face before agreeing to do the deed. We get a shot of Rebido with his back to the action, but the grimace on his face would suggest that he isn't liking what he hears. Robson, on the other hand, seems to be having a whale of a time until he screams in horror, which wakes Schillinger from his sleep as Beecher gets to his feet and spits blood from his mouth, as well as the tip of Robson's penis, linking back to the title of the episode beautifully. We see Robson going to the hospital, still screaming. I would say he's screaming his head off, but that's already been done for him. God, even I'm ashamed of that one. Beecher earns a trip to the hull, his third trip so far, still spitting bits of Robson out of his mouth as the door is closed behind him. And we see Leo in M-City, where he sees Case is working late. He points out that Leo is working late too, Leo saying they've had a couple of incidents, but nothing that Case needs to know about. Leo asks why Case is in M-City, and he says that he's still trying to piece together this thing with Scott Ross. 
says that there were six hostages left when the sort attacked, who were McManus, Diane, Ray, Officer Dagnasty, Officer Hunt, and Officer Nowakowski. Obviously, we know two of those are dead and that McManus was shot, and he concludes that there is less chance of McManus being the one to shoot Scott. Leo asks him why he's so sure it was a staff member that shot Scott as opposed to an inmate and mentions that Scott wasn't the most well-liked in M-City. Case says that had crossed his mind, but after speaking with Haim, who he says is lying through his teeth, he realised that Haim wouldn't cover for an inmate and that he must be protecting a colleague, which leaves Dagnasty, Diane and Ray as the suspects. Leo interjects saying that Ray wasn't involved, but Case tells him that you never know, which is a fair point. And with that, we cut to Case meeting with Ray, who is sporting a big comedy bandage on his head. How did Ross treat everyone? He was a condescending little prick. Did he do any harm to you personally, physically? Nope. What about officers Whittlesey or Dignasty? I don't remember. I've been beaten pretty badly, and I was... terrified. Anything else you remember? My nose itched. But because our hands were tied behind us, I couldn't scratch. Stand in a straight line. When they come in, you get hit first. Through it all. Through the tear gas and the gunfire and the fear and the adrenaline and overdrive. The only thing I could think of was... Christ, would someone please scratch my nose? Cuts to Gen Pop, where Kenny screams for someone to get him some tits, and he also seems to have taken the howling like a wolf. And Dagnasty, who is back to work very quickly considering what's happened, tells him to shut up and hits the cell bars. Augustus asks Dagnasty if there's any news on Dobbins and Vahew, but there's still no update and he goes back to telling Kenny to shut up. Case shows up to question Dagnasty, who tries to brush him off saying that he's working, but Case tells him that he'll be brief. He asks Dagnasty to clarify that the hostages had their hands tied behind them with rope and then asks when he managed to get his hands free, Dagnasty saying that it was some time after the shooting stopped. Case asks him specifically which prisoner tied him up, and Dagnasty tells him it was Scott. When Case questions that he didn't like Scott, Dagnasty asks, you know, what was there to like, and then goes back to Kenny and tells him to shut up some more. So Dagnasty not really doing a whole lot to help his case, but it's kind of understandable all things considered. Case then goes to interview Diane, who again is back to work very quickly, although she seems to have the better end of the stick as she's working one of the reception desks. Case even makes reference to this, saying that it's much quieter than when she was in MC. A female visitor arrives and sets off the metal detector and says that she's there to visit her husband. Diane tells her that they're in lockdown and that the visit won't be happening. The woman says that she's driven 312 miles to visit her husband. Diane says that they've had a riot, and although it is over, the woman won't be seeing her husband, which obviously goes down very well. Diane repeatedly asks, can I help you with anything else, as she just continues to get told that this woman has travelled 312 miles, before Diane finally asks for her to be taken away. Case jokingly mouths the word wow, and says that maybe it's not so quiet after all. He quickly gets to his questions, asking Diane to recount what happened from when the sort entered. Diane says that she's already told him this, so turns out this is Case doing a follow-up interview. Or more likely, he's seeing if Diane can remember a story, and he claims that he's lost his notebook. It's actually quite a clever tactic, maybe I should give him a little more credit. Diane says that the tear gas made it hard to see, and that she and McManus ducked behind a column, which we saw in the flashback earlier. She says that they heard gunfire which seemed to last forever, then silence, and they figured it was over, which is when McManus leaned out and got shot. 
Case asks if McManus fell to the floor, which Diane says that he did. Case then asks what Diane did after that, to which she says that she cradled him in her arms until help arrived. Case then asks what kind of prisoner Scott was, Diane saying that he was average as we get another flashback to when Scott said to her that they were joined at the hip. Case thanks her and leaves as we get Augustus narrating about how people will say that lying is wrong and then do it anyway because lies are necessary. We then cut to the staff room where Sister Pete and Gloria are talking about McManus, who is due to be released from the hospital in a week. Diane enters and asks if either of them has spoken to Case and wants to know if Case has been asking about her. Pete says that he hadn't been asking anything in particular before Diane leaves and Pete and Gloria exchange a what the hell was that about look to each other. We see Verhu arrive in Gen Pop and Augustus actually seems happy to see him for once. He asks how Dobbin is but Verhu breaks the news that Dobbins has died as we then cut to a corridor where Case runs into Judge Fee from the commission. He asks where Case has been as we close out Act 2. There you are. You've been looking for me? Everywhere. Falling and I've been trying to meet with you all day. What have you been doing? been working this murder angle. Oh, Christ. Alva, forget about that. Really. You don't want to concern yourself with things like that. Believe me, you're looking in the wrong direction. Well, it's all part of the story, Judge. It's all part of the story. So Act 3 gets underway with Gloria updating Case on Adebisi's health, and we see that he's been placed in some restraints in his hospital bed for his own safety. Adebisi has been sedated, so it's going to be a couple of hours until he comes round, so Case uses this opportunity to turn on the charm and ask Gloria if she wants to go for a drink. Gloria isn't biting though, and she says that Case makes her nervous. Case protests his innocent and says to ask his mother about him being the sweetest man on the planet. They exchange a few more pleasantries before Gloria makes the point about how Case trains lawyers, and with that, Case drops the act and proceeds to ask his questions. We, however, head back into the ward where Robson is hallucinating about some of the inmates who are dressed up as doctors, telling him that he's had his dick bit off. He then sees a naked woman and reaches out to touch her breast, and she turns into Beecher, who is sporting an evil grin. Robson snaps out of it and sees Miguel standing at his bedside. He asks Robson how it feels, and Robson says that it just feels weird. Cuts to nighttime in Gen Pop, and we get a quick shot of Schillinger, who is tossing and turning, struggling to get to sleep because he's right next to a reef who is praying to Mecca. Muslims say five daily prayers, and this one at nighttime is referred to as the Asha. Scene closes on Kennedy struggling with being clean, and he's taken to banging the back of his head similar to how Adabizi was earlier. We get shots of Ryan and Saeed performing exercises in solitary. Beecher licking the walls in the hull, which can't possibly be a good idea. And finally we see Kenny snap and get taken to the hospital to get help with his come down. A news report is shown on the TV, mentioning about the public outcry regarding Devlin's decision to send in the sort. So somehow that information has been made public, but it's not really expanded on. Devlin turns off the TV before we can hear much more, and he asks the commission why it's taking so long. Case asks him if he wants things done right or just done fast. Devlin telling him that he wants both. He then says that he wants the commission to hold another press conference to give an update, and that he's getting tired of having to say that he has faith in the commission. Judge Fee tries to deflect some of the blame, saying that they could be moving faster if Case wasn't so focused on this so-called murder, and tries to downplay its importance. Case disagrees, saying that he thinks the murder is endemic of the whole problem surrounding Oz. Fee says that Case is full of shit, but Case retorts, saying that Fee's last three decisions from the bench show that he's the master of being full of shit. It's proper schoolyard stuff. Not far above the level of my dad could beat up your dad. They argue some more and both threaten to resign from the commission when Devlin, of all people, acts as the voice of reason, saying that no one is resigning and that the sooner the investigation is completed, the happier they will all be. 
Back in the infirmary at night, Miguel gets out of his bed and pulls out a weapon or a tool of some sort from underneath his mattress. He heads out to the medicine storage and jimmies the lock open, stealing some pills from a drawer. He heads back to the ward and gives some of the pills to a still rambling Adebisi and tells him sweet dreams, motherfucker, before taking a pill himself and placing the rest of the bottle in his dressing gown pocket. We don't find out exactly what these pills are, but they're probably something along the lines of Temazepam or Ambien, which are both pretty common prescription pills to help with sleep. Next morning, and Gloria is checking over Kenny and Adebisi, who seems to be coming round a bit from his detoxing, and he even cracks a joke about marrying the last woman that tied him down. He has to have his restraints removed, but Gloria says that before that can happen, they and Sister Pete need to have a meeting, so presumably that would be some sort of psychiatric evaluation carried out by Sister Pete, which I reckon would make for fascinating reading. Robson is in his bed looking at an issue of Penthouse. He tells Gloria that his dick is hard and asks if that's a good thing. Gloria just brushes it off saying, you tell me, and you kind of see her crack a little smile. She's proud of a little joke. We see an orderly come in and take Miguel's dressing gown away, Miguel watching him as he does so. Perhaps Miguel is stealing medication and selling it in other parts of the prison, we'll have to wait and see. Back to the murder investigation, and Case is asking Sister Pete some questions about Scott Ross. What are you looking for? Your impressions of Ross. You're a teacher, right? I used to be. Now that I'm a dean, I spend less and less time in the classroom. You know how teachers get favorite students sometimes, get a real affection for them? Oh, yeah. I couldn't wait for Ross to leave the office. Did he frighten you? That, and uh, he had a terrible hygiene problem. Did he ever mention having a sexual relationship with anyone on the staff? As you'll see in the files, he said a lot of things. He was a compulsive liar. Do you have a council of staff members? Sure. Did anyone ever talk of Ross, I mean, negatively? Sure. Who? Everybody. Can you be a little more specific? Come on. You know, an un doesn't reveal the confidence. You're not a priest. The silence of the confessional doesn't apply here. As a psychologist, it does. Then we may have to let a court determine that. Well, that's fine. I want those files back when you're through with them. Anything else? No. So, an interesting thing coming out of this meeting between Pete and Case. Sister Pete never seems to take any shit from anybody, which is one of the things I like most about her. Yet, it was interesting that she alludes to Scott frightening her a little, especially when she doesn't show any sign of being intimidated by Case here. Even after he threatens her with a court order, she takes it on the chin and completely no-sells him. So what was it about Scott that made her feel frightened? Next up, Case goes to visit with Ryan. He reads off Ryan's list of conviction, which he calls an amazing list, and says that even with all those talents, Ryan must have found it difficult to adjust to life in Oz. But Ryan says that he can take care of himself and compares himself to the Lord of the Dance in that he has the moves. After hearing that, I now want an Oz spin-off of Michael Flatley surviving prison with only his Irish dancing to protect him. Case asks Ryan why, out of all the leaders of the riot, he was the only one without any firepower, yet was somehow allowed to take part in the decision-making process. Obviously, Saeed was the only one with any literal firepower, the others were gang leaders, whereas Ryan was just kind of associated with Scott and the Brotherhood. Ryan says that he had nothing to do with the riot, and Case then mulls over that his quote-unquote reliable source may have been misinformed. 
because he got the impression that Ryan and Scott were close, even implying that they were lovers, which is probably just a tactic to try and provoke Ryan and get something out of him. Ryan asks where he heard that, and Case says that Scott poured his heart out to Sister Pete. Whether that was in one of the files or not, we don't know, and even if it was, Pete made it clear that Scott was a liar and couldn't be believed. But I'm guessing this is just another part in Case's game. Ryan's mood changes, and he says that he isn't gay, or words to that effect, and that even if he was, he wouldn't go anywhere near Scott. He says that Scott would fuck anything that moved, to which Case asks if Scott was ever involved with one of the staff. Ryan tries to bargain to get out of solitary, but he's told that he isn't going anywhere until the investigation is completed, so Ryan settles for a cigarette instead. He tells Case that Scott had a thing for Diane, saying they knew each other on the outside, and that they were always sneaking off and whispering as we close the scene. Cut to Diane visiting McManus in the hospital, and she is confiding in him that Case is giving her the creeps. McManus tells her not to worry, and that Case will do his investigation and be gone. But Diane just has a faraway look in her eyes. She's clearly worried about what Case is going to find out. Augustus narrates about if you repeat a lie often enough, then it ends up becoming the truth, as Case meets with Schillinger. Case is one of the few people on the show who actually pronounces Schillinger's name correctly. Most other people call him Schillinger, which I may have done on the podcast at one point, but I think I got away with it. Case asks him about his upcoming parole date and asks Schillinger if he thinks he's got a chance of getting out. Schillinger says that he thinks that he does and that his boys need him. And with that, Case says that he would be willing to put in a letter of recommendation to the parole board. So long as Schillinger helps him out now, of course. He asks Schillinger about Scott mentioning about having a sexual relationship with Diane. And Schillinger talks about Scott and Diane's ex riding together in the bike gang, and mentions that Scott would say that Diane had cheated on her husband with him. But he also says that Scott was a bit of a liar too, so in the space of two sentences, Schillinger goes from corroborating what Ryan had said about Scott and Diane knowing each other, to sowing the seeds of doubt about if Scott is telling the truth or not. They're not making things easy for Case at all. Case asks if anything had been happening between them since Scott came to Oz, and again, according to Scott, they were sleeping together fairly regular. Case asks if Schillinger thinks he was lying about that too, and with a long look, Schillinger says that Scott probably was. I know I'm beginning to sound like a bit of a broken record here, but once again, I absolutely loved J.K. Simmons in this scene. With his eye focused on getting his parole granted, this is a completely different Schillinger from what we first encountered. And even though you shouldn't really be rooting for him because he is a massive scumbag, you really get the sense that Schillinger has turned the corner somewhat. Obviously, we'll find out going forward if that is true or not. Case then meets up with Ribado in the library, who Case had to get special permission for to be out of lockdown. Which on the face of things seems like a nice gesture, but is most likely an attempt to gain Ribado's trust. He asks Ribado if he knows of anything going on between Scott and Diane, and Ribado mentions about the cigarette racket, and how everything was going smoothly until McManus found out. So Case detects that that must be the reason why Scott hated McManus, before Ribado also mentions about McManus and Diane sleeping together, which seems to be somewhat of a revelation to Case as we close the scene. I found this to be somewhat of an interesting character development for Ribado here. So far, he's been the guy who talks to gods, so you can see why people would be willing to take what he says with a pinch of salt. And there has been occasions where he has said, I've heard this, or I've heard that, and again, you you take it at face value. Case even says to him that he heard that Ribado hears everything that happens in Oz. But when someone says that they have actually spoken to God, or God has spoken to them, then that's somewhat of a red flag when it comes to being credible. Whereas here, everything that Ribado says has been right on the money. We don't know how he knows about these things, but we know that it is at least true. 
We go to Gen Pop, where Schillinger asks Diane if she has a cigarette, and if ever there was a look that could kill, Diane has it right here. He says to her, why would you? Ross is dead. It's amazing what a guy can see with one eye, in the dark, through the tear gas, before he reassures her that he didn't tell Case anything. Diane asks Schillinger what he wants from her, and he says that with his parole hearing coming up, the best thing for her would be for him to be on the outside. We cut to Case in Leo's office, and he's explaining why he thinks that Diane is the one who killed Scott, saying that she had a motive, as well as the opportunity. Leo defends her, saying that he has known Diane for years, and tells Case not to walk into his office talking about motive and opportunity, and asks for evidence instead. Case suggests that maybe in the heat of everything that maybe Diane snapped, but Leo says that it has to be something bigger than that, and like what we've seen before from Leo, it's clear that he wants things done by the book. Even though he is willing to defend Diane to a certain degree, he wants things done right, and if that means having to fire Diane, then he will, much like he did when he fired Haley. The phone rings, and we find out that Beecher wants to speak to Case. So we go to the hall where Case meets with Beecher, who is leaning back against the wall completely starkers, and says that he has a secret. Case asks for the guard to leave them alone so that he and Beecher can talk, and Beecher begins to tell him about how he used to be a lawyer and that he went to Harvard, and it turns out that Case did as well. Beecher mentions about biting the tip of Robson's penis off and asks if Case is afraid or not, but Case jokes that he's got his pants on and therefore has nothing to worry about. Beecher says that he's been under a lot of stress, which is somewhat of an understatement, and hasn't been behaving very nicely, but that he is going to use his time in the hull to sort his head out, and is going to get out a better person. And as a sign that he is on the way back toward the straight and narrow, he tells Case his secret. I saw the shots fired. Which shots? Check the bullets. The bullets that killed Ross? No. Check the bullets in McManus. So Beecher gives Case a new lead, and the two shake hands before Case goes to visit with Leo once again. Also in this scene, we get another case of the boom mic sneaking into the shot, which is sort of understandable as the set for scenes taking place in the hall is such a confined space. Had this been a constructed set, you'd have been able to have removable walls giving the actors and the crew some more space, but with this being a location, it makes things that little bit more difficult. Case explains that the striations from the bullets taken out of McManus were fired from either a Glock or a Sig Sauer, which is different from what the sort use in their handguns. Leo says that the gun that Saeed used in the riot was indeed a Sig Sauer. According to the trivia page for this episode, the gun that Saeed was given was in fact a Glock. I'll be perfectly honest, I'm not a gun guy, so I'm not too familiar with the differences between the two. But according to range365.com, the Glock has a polymer frame matted to a steel slide, and the Sig Sauer uses a frame made from anodized aluminium with a steel slide. Glock magazines are made from polymer, whereas Sig Sauer magazines are steel. So Case heads off to confront Saeed and flat out accuses him of shooting McManus, which Saeed denies. Case asks him, if you didn't, then who did? With Saeed firmly telling him that he doesn't know. Case tries to get Saeed to admit to having the gun in his possession, but Saeed says that if he admits that, then he'll likely end up staying in solitary. Case asks Saeed if he likes it in solitary, and that it is up to him when and if Saeed gets to leave, saying that he knows how important it is to Saeed to be amongst his people, and that it's going to be hard to do that behind eight tons of steel. Saeed says that theoretically, if he did have a gun when the SORT team entered, so Saeed is also in the SORT team club, 
that maybe he would have been under the control desk holding the gun when a member of the sort started to beat him, and that he might have thrown the gun to the side to avoid killing anybody. Case asks if that means that somebody else picked it up, to which Saeed says yes. Theoretically speaking, of course. Case goes to visit with McManus again in the hospital, and he's taken into some horrible-looking food. Case says that he knows that McManus has nothing to say to him, but that he has something that he wants to get off his chest. First off, he acknowledges that McManus has balls for going into M-City voluntarily to negotiate with the inmates, putting himself into what Case calls a jackpot situation, knowing that McManus would fall into the hands of Scott Ross, who he says McManus despised. He then asks how ironic it was that Scott was the one who shot him. McManus asks Case who told him, Case adding the question that Scott Ross was the one who shot you, to which McManus says yes, and Case answers with, you just did, and he leaves with a big beaming smile on his face. So McManus fell into Case's trap and he looks pretty upset about it. Obviously this is why McManus didn't want to say anything earlier on, as it would implicate somebody else into the shooting of Scott Ross, which we transition into with Case going to see Diane again. He says that Oz is just like any other place, and that everybody loves to gossip about everybody else. Diane says that she isn't one of those people, but Case says that people do gossip about her, and that maybe that's because she's one of the few women around the place, or that maybe there's truth to the rumours. He mentions about the cigarette racket and sleeping with McManus, which angers Diane, and she asks if Case is accusing her of something. And with that, Case does another of his now trademark tone changes and says that he is, and says that Diane is the one that killed Scott. Diane asks him, oh yeah, how did I do that? And Case explains what went down. So Case's summary goes as follows. Scott picked up Saeed's gun and fired into McManus's chest, and he makes a bang noise. Diane then took Officer Heim's pistol and shot Scott, and he makes three bang noises whilst pointing to his head, then to his heart, and then to his groin. There's a very subtle noise placed as Case mimics the gunfire, which works really well to emphasise the situation. Diane says that can't be possible because her hands were tied behind her back, but Case says that they weren't. Diane managed to loosen her binds and that she claimed that McManus fell to the ground, and he opens his notebook and quotes Diane as saying, I cradled him in my arms, and then asks, how could you cradle him with your hands behind your back? So the scene that we saw earlier at the reception, you know, the one with the woman who drove however far it was, I don't think she mentioned it, that's what turned out to be Diane's undoing. Diane asks Case if he's ever been in a riot, which he says he hasn't. She says that you need to understand what's involved, such as being a hostage, the mob mentality that comes with it, and that sometimes you get carried away and become part of something. She says that she has made every mistake there is, and lists a few things that add to her character a little bit. We know she had a daughter, but hadn't mentioned that she was born out of wedlock, and she also mentions about snorting too much. Diane says that she made the choice each time and mentions about how it was her choice to walk away from her abusive husband, and she refuses to be anybody's victim, and the mistakes are a part of her, and she doesn't regret what she has done. She asks what Case is going to do, and he leaves saying when he knows, she'll know. This is my favourite Edie Falco scene so far. Diane knows that Case has figured everything out and she can't lie about anything anymore. But the way in which she justifies herself, particularly by bringing up her past, makes you want to root for her all the more. It's similar to the scene where she was explaining about hunting the deer and how she said sorry to it. Edie really seems to nail these scenes where she has to delve into Diane's past. Case goes to talk with Leo about what's to be done with Diane. Leo mentions about Diane's daughter and how she has a mother in and out of chemotherapy. To which Case says, so what? And he's sort of right. Diane has committed a murder after all. But Leo makes the point that if he destroys Diane's life, it has knock-on effects. 
He asks Case to say that Scott died like the others during the riot by the saw. So he contradicts his own ethics that we've seen so far because he knows of the implications it will have on the rest of Diane's family. It will have taken a lot for Leo to do that, and even if he is breaking his own code, you understand the reasons for him doing so? Devlin storms into the office and he is pissed about the first draft of Case's report, which recommends not filing charges against the riot leaders, stipulating that from a legal point of view the evidence is circumstantial and from the moral standpoint it's laughable. Devlin says that he wants them on trial on TV, but Case shuts him down saying that everything came about as a result of Devlin's actions. He says that while the commission behaved like good little boys and exonerated Devlin, he can't have it both ways and that if the inmates are guilty, then Devlin is too. Devlin, the little creep that he is, tries to get in Case's face and says that he doesn't expect this sort of behaviour out of the Attorney General. But Case says that he has thought it over and he doesn't want that role anymore, and that he wants to be governor instead. Devlin tries to laugh it off, but Case says that he'll see him on the campaign trail, and then leaves to attend a press conference. Which we get to see along with Beecher being released from the hall, Miguel leaving the hospital with a choice word for Adebisi, Ryan and Saeed being released from solitary, Mamanis leaving the hospital with Diane, and Augustus narrating about who was to truly blame for the riot as the episode comes to a close. It is the considered opinion of this commission that though the riot itself and the deaths that followed are tragic, no one in particular is at fault. We do feel that there are certain measures that can be taken to ensure that an event like this does not happen again. So that was Series 2, Episode 1, The Tip. I'll be perfectly honest, I wasn't too keen on this episode when I first rewatched it. I don't know if that's just because I felt there was a little more mileage in the story of Case uncovering the truth behind the death of Scott Ross or not, but when I watched it again to make notes for the show, I actually enjoyed it much more. As I mentioned earlier, maybe having Case's investigation as a standalone, self-contained episode actually worked quite well. Otherwise, we would have been going over a lot of old ground. Having everything covered and solved in the space of an hour served well as a reminder of where we are at, and especially at the time would have worked well as the show had been off the air for nearly a year. Episode MVP can only realistically go to one person, and that is the guest starring Charles S. Dutton as Alva Case. He certainly gets the most screen time, but his character leaves quite the mark after setting out to solve the murder, and ultimately sets the rest of the series in motion by allowing M-City to reopen, which we will see next time. And in the result of Homicide or Nomicide, I can reveal that Paul Schulz... did appear on an episode of Homicide Life on the Street. He appeared in Season 1, Episode 3, Son of a Gun from 1993. 
As I mentioned at the end of the last series, we did indeed get some confirmed extra deaths as a result of the riot. I'm not including Rodrigo, who Miguel mentions in this episode, as I already included him as an unnamed inmate in the last series' death toll. All in all, we're off to a cracker on the death toll for series 2, with a total of 7 dead. So, this episode we say goodbye to two members of the prison staff. First is Officer Eddie Hunt, played by Murphy Geyer. Born in Dover, Delaware and growing up in rural Maryland, Gaia moved to New York City at the age of 19 and attended the American Academy of Dramatic Arts on an acting scholarship. After discovering a talent for writing jokes, Gaia wrote for various stand-ups and improv groups. After leaving Oz, Gaia would appear in the films The Devil's Advocate and The Jackal, as well as appearing on TV in episodes of The Sopranos, 24, and HBO's 2011 adaptation of Mildred Pierce. Gaia has also undertaken voiceover work, lending his voice to the first Red Dead Redemption video game in 2010, as well as the Batman Telltale game series playing the role of James Gordon. 2018 has seen Gaia appear on television in three episodes of Bull and Madam Secretary, both airing on CBS, as well as The Deuce for HBO. We also say goodbye to the man who died on his first day at Oz, Officer Anthony Nowakowski, played by Matt Ross. After leaving Oz and appearing as Lewis Carruthers in 2000's American Psycho, Ross appeared in the TV miniseries Rose Red, as well as an episode of HBO's Six Feet Under. Ross would appear in movies throughout the noughties, such as The Aviator, Good Night and Good Luck, and Last Holiday. Ross would return to HBO, appearing in 49 episodes of Big Love, a drama about a polygamous family playing the part of Jack Klein. Since 2014, Ross has appeared as Gavin Belson in the first five series of Mike Judge's comedy series Silicon Valley for HBO. Along with three other unnamed inmates, the other notable cast member to leave the show is Scott Ross, played by Stephen Jeevedon. Post-Oz, Jeevedon has appeared in a number of TV shows, including NYPD Blue, Law & Order Special Victims Unit, in which he reunited with Oz co-star B.D. Wong, and Nurse Jackie, where he would reunite with Edie Falco, who of course plays Diane here on Oz. In 2001, Jeevan wrote his first film, Session 9, before continuing to work in both TV and film, as well as undertaking voiceover work, most recently appearing in the video game Red Dead Redemption 2. Also leaving the show is Zuil Bailey, who played the part of Eugene Dobbins. As I mentioned previously, Oz was his only acting credit, but Bailey did appear in the 2010 documentary film Back and Friends. Bailey continues to play the cello and has a recording contract with Telarc Records. In 2016, Bailey won the Grammy Award for Best Classical Instrumental Solo for his part in the Nashville Symphony's recording of Michael Doherty's cello concerto, Tales of Hemingway. These days, Bailey is the artistic director of the Sitka Music Festival, as well as being a cello professor at the University of Texas at El Paso. So that is everything for Series 2, Episode 1, The Tip. As always, you can catch up on any episodes that you have missed by heading over to iTunes, over to Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, and all other good podcasting platforms. The entire first series is available for free, along with a bonus watch-along episode where we sit down and watch Disney's Cool Runnings, starring Leon. Help the show out by leaving a five-star review wherever you can. It really helps with the exposure for the show so it can continue to grow. You can contact the show by emailing any questions or comments to insideodspodcast at gmail.com and you can follow the show on social media on both Instagram and Twitter using the handle at insideodspodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we will be looking at Series 2, Episode 2, Ancient Tribes, in which the inmates head back to M-City and we get a number of big debuts from new cast members. Until then, I'm off to start work on the Oz Michael Flatley spin-off, but I will catch you all next time on Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Take care, everyone. Bye.